from time to time we'll see coming to the uh, Cruzan Amphitheater uh, these bands from my childhood, rock and roll bands that I uh, remember when I was in the child in the in the 80s. And it's always fascinating to me to see them come into town because I know they haven't put out any new music in over 20 or 25 years. But they still are able to draw a crowd and they're living upon their reputation of the things that they had done and the music that they had played back in the early and the mid-80s. And I just kind of chuckle and go, yeah, I remember back then. I've kind of moved on, but perhaps they haven't. (laughs) The church in Sardis is of the same nature. They have this great reputation that they're something, that they're Christians, that they are alive. And Christ comes to them in this letter and says, you know, I know who you are. There's nothing new about you. There's nothing alive. There's nothing fresh or real. You have a reputation that perhaps has uh, caused others to think that you are Christians and are professing a great faith in Christ, but you're dead. And what we read in the first six verses of Revelation 3 is uh, an amazing statement to the Christians there as there's nothing good said about them, but he has to drive at them a serious problem that they're a church that thinks they're alive and that they are worshiping God, and yet in fact they're dead and in need of repentance. We'll notice a couple of things before we get into the heart of that letter. In verse 1, as it was read for us this morning, we have Jesus as He describes Himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and has the seven stars. That is the imagery that we read about back in chapter 1 that we are doing in the Sunday night uh, lesson series that we are going through the book of Revelation. And there in chapter 1, one of the images that we see of Jesus is holding the seven stars and we have a picture then that Jesus is in charge. He is the one who has authority. He is the one who carries the power and the might and the weight. And so here He is pictured to this church and it is a picture of I have authority and the things that I have to say concerning your welfare and your faith are not good. And so He says in verse 2, or at the end of verse 1 actually, I know your works. Now in the other letters, that was actually a good thing. Remember like we saw in Thyatira back in chapter 2 and verse 19, I know your works, your faith, your love, your patient endurance. And so he would tell them about all the things that I know about your works. And he's done that with the other churches of here's the works that I know concerning you. But here in this first verse of chapter 3, as he writes to Sardis, when he says, I know your works, it's not a good statement. There's no commending. There's nothing here that says, I know your works and here's the works that you've done. Instead, he says, I know your works and here's the works that you have. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I know your works. I know that you have a facade. I know that it appears to everybody that you are true Christians. That you have a reputation that others around think of you as a a candlestick and a lampstand for Christ. But you're not. You carry a great reputation. But Christ says, I know your works. I see what you're doing. I can see through the facade. I can see through the reputation. I can see through the name that you carry. And I recognize that you're actually a dead church. 
I think that should be a, a staggering statement, but perhaps even more devastating than that is it appears from what we read in the text that they're not aware of that. They don't even realize they're dead. They're probably believing that they're in good graces with God, that here is a church and we think we're doing well and everybody knows about us and everybody has a good reputation about this church and they don't even recognize themselves that they are dead. And that's probably one of the the worst parts about it is the inability to look at themselves honestly and see that their works are lacking, that they are not measuring up to the standard that God had laid out for them. And that leads to the first of many points that we're going to make this morning in talking about igniting our zeal and rekindling our fire for God is just simply to ask the question, are we being fake? Are we in the same boat as these Christians in Sardis? Do we do the same thing? Do we have this facade of being alive that we will claim to be Christians, we will wear the title, but that there's nothing in our lives or in our actions that shows us to be truly followers of Jesus? We're willing to say that we are followers of Christ. We will come to services. We will participate in worship. But at a closer analysis, there's nothing in our lives that reveals that we are truly the people of God. That there do not, we do not see in our lives people who are honestly and sincerely and fully devoted to Christ. It's easy to have the facade. It's easy to have the name of Christ. But are we truly devoted followers? Do we really care about Jesus? And what we're going to do in this lesson as we go through this church in Sardis is we're going to talk about, well, how can we fix that? What can we do to change if that's the reality that we are simply putting on a show, that we are only wearing a name and a title, but our lives do not reflect the reality that Christ has called us to? What can we do about that? And that's what Jesus is going to write to these Christians and describe to them and tell them, here's what you need to do. And that's how he continues on in verse 2 when he says, wake up, wake up. It's time to open your eyes and see what is going on. It is time to stop faking ourselves out and thinking that the way that we are living our lives right now is okay. If we are people who are being fake, that's not working for God. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's time to wake up from that falseness. It's time to recognize that you can claim to be a Christian and you can seem to be one on the outside and you might have everybody else fooled but it's time to wake up to reality. You know, we had a, 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 I think it was a commercial. That's probably where we got the saying. I'm trying to remember as a kid. It was a wake up and smell the coffee, right? I think that was a commercial. Uh, that's the idea. It's time to wake up, you know, get the sleep out of your eyes and, and see yourself for who you really are. See where you really stand before God. And that's how he continues. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. He says, you need to be careful here. There's not much that's left. As he analyzes these Christians, he says, what little you have, it needs to be fixed before it's too late. I think it is a picture of looking into the heart of these Christians. And the flame for the Lord, it's not completely doused. But all that's left is probably just a little ember 
a glow. Just a little bit left. And that's why he looks at them and says, it's just about gone. You, your faith is almost lost. You've lost that fire and flame for God. There's just a little that remains. And that's how he goes on in verse 2. He says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You're not doing what needs to be done. You're coming up short. And so you may be claiming something and you may be fooling people into acting like you're some sort of Christian, but Christ says, I see what's going on. I see what little there is. And you're not fooling me. And so He tells them what they need to do about it. And I notice verse 3. He tells them the picture now. Here's what needs to be done. The first word is remember. Remember then what you have received and what you've heard. Remember the teachings that you were given. Remember, you can imagine Christ saying, you know what the apostles taught. You know what I taught. You know what you need to be doing. You know what Christ calls us to. Remember the teachings that you have received. Remember what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Remember how you have been taught about the punishment that will come. Remember how you have been taught about the graciousness of God. Remember all the things that you were given to you. You've received them. You've heard them. Don't let them go. Don't forget about them. And then he says a little bit more there. Keep them and repent. Keep what you have been taught. You know what Christ is calling you to do. You know what He is telling you to change. You know the areas in your life that are deficient. It's not too late to change. Remember what you've been taught. Keep the words that you've been taught. And repent before it's too late. What I would like to use with that is to consider what we've been doing throughout this series as an analysis for what Jesus does here. And I think that's something that can be challenging for us, but I think it's what Jesus is calling us to do. Is our lives, or are our lives changing on a regular basis? Are our lives improving for Christ? In last week's lesson, what we did was we talked about acceptable sins. Remember we talked about tolerable, acceptable sins. We all have a list of sins that, oh, I certainly wouldn't do these. But we have a list of sins in our lives of the things that we will do. That we find that, well, for us it's okay. We'll tolerate these. We'll accept these. And usually our list of sins are the things that we will not tolerate are the things that you're doing. And the things that we will tolerate are the things that I'm doing. That's usually how the list goes. Have we made any changes in our lives from last week? As that's the picture that he's giving here is remember the teachings, you've heard the word of God, keep them and repent. Are we making any improvements whatsoever? Are we making any life changes for Christ whatsoever? Or do we just simply hear the Word of God, go right out the doors, return back to the very thing that we were doing, come back the following Sunday, hear the Word of the Lord, and go right back to doing the thing that we were doing before? That's a dead church. Here is a church that hears the Word of God, but they won't do one thing about it. He's just simply saying, what are you doing? You have to keep the things. You've heard the teachings. Keep those things that remain. Keep the things that you've been taught. You know what you need to do. And I I think 
Too often I think we have the idea that all that we need to do is simply come and God is going to find us acceptable. And if you're a guest here today, I want to tell you, I think that God is pleased that you're here. And for those who are not guests here but regularly attend here, I believe that God is pleased you're here. But God is calling for you to have a relationship with Him and not just simply be here. God is calling for you to have a life change, to change what you are doing so that you can be in a relationship with Him. It's not just simply, well, I was here, check it off the list, God's going to pass by and not barbecue me today because at least I checked in on Sunday, I'm good to go for another six days of doing what I want to do. He's calling for us to have a relationship with Him. He's calling for us to have changed lives. And how awful it is for us to hear the Word of the Lord and make absolutely no changes whatsoever. And I'm not talking about like you're supposed to be impressed with my preaching aptitude of some sort. That has nothing to do with anything. When we hear the Word of the Lord, does that make us go and change? That's all that matters. I can butcher the text as badly as I possibly could be, but the Word of the Lord should still shine through that we'll want to do what the Word of God says. That we'll put away sin. That we'll change our lives. That we'll stop doing the things that we just keep doing over and over again. To have a fire for God, it means we're going to have to change. It's something that we don't like, but it's something that we'll have to do. Right along with that... What I think we see Jesus telling this church as well is that there's a need for a commitment from them. It's not enough to have the name. It's not enough to simply say, well, we're Christians. It is absolutely absurd. It is insane on our part to think that we can call ourselves Christians, to think that we are in any kind of relationship with Christ whatsoever if we're not fully devoted to Him. If we don't care about Him, if we don't love Him, why do we wear this title of Christian? If we have no interest at all in doing what Jesus has told us to do, then it is absolutely absurd on our part to act like we're some kind of Christian. You see how Jesus is penetrating into the heart here of these Christians as He says, you're a dead church. You think you're alive. You think you're doing what God wants you to do. But where's the fire? Where's the zeal? Where's the love? Where's the relationship? Yeah, you've got a church, great. Yeah, you show up on Sunday, great. Yeah, there's the Lord's Supper, great. Yeah, there's lessons and prayers, great. Where's the love? Where's the heart? Where's the relationship? Where's the devotion? You have a name of being alive, but you're dead. You're just dead. And we can fall into the same trap of thinking that we're alive because... We do these few things. And in the process, we have not built any relationship with Christ at all. There's no love. We're not interested in doing what He says. We're not devoted. We're just there. We sit down. We punch out. We sleep with our eyes open. 
We sometimes sleep with our eyes closed. We do whatever we got to do to get through the hour instead of focusing on here is a time to hear the Word of the Lord. What can I do to be in a relationship with Him? And I think the problem comes down to we often are trying to serve God leftovers, I think. I think that's kind of what it boils down to in its simplest form. The way we treat God is that we will give Him our leftovers. When I have time, I will do whatever He asks me to do. If I had more time for God, then I would be a great Christian. But you just don't understand my schedule. You don't understand all the the requirements and the demands that I have in my life. And and if I didn't have those demands, boy, yes, of course I would be doing so much more for Christ. But but you know how it is. You know all the things that we have to do. You know how busy I am. We're serving leftovers to a holy God. And so often we forget that God wants our best. He deserves our best. And let me underline, He demands our best. He wants it, He deserves it, and He demands it from us. And so often we're coming before God with, well, this is all I have left over. It's the end of the week, you know. I had nothing else scheduled this morning, so it's time to come to church, I guess. And then I'll get on back to doing what I want to do. Thank you, God, for being there. Pass your holy water on me. Make me full of grace. and I'm good to live my life this week. What? He doesn't want our leftovers. He doesn't want the, oh, I guess I got a little bit of time for him. I guess I'll go ahead and stick him in right here. God must come first. And that's the point that he's looking at and saying, you're a dead church. You claim that Christ is your devotion. And Christ is saying, I don't see it. Where is it? It's not there. And so often we're trying to give God the leftovers. And when we talk about things like this, I think often what we begin to emphasize is, well, give me the list of all the things that I need to do, right? Okay, here's all the things I need to do better. I need to do more. I need to pray more. And I need to serve more. We could could just go through a big long list and I could just guilt you right out the door so that you'll feel this high by the time we get done with all of this. But I think that misses the point. I really do think that that misses the point because that's the wrong approach. Because this week you could go and try to pray more and you could try to serve more and try to read more and still be giving your leftovers to God. You can still, you know, okay, instead of five minutes, I'll give Him ten and that still be your leftovers. And it still not be the heart that God is demanding of us. Have we seen it through these lessons so far? God wants us to love Him. God is not about you making sure you have appeased Him by doing enough things this week. He wants your heart. He wants your devotion. He wants you to love Him. And all relationships work that way. A marriage is not built on, well, at least I did the dishes and took out the trash and I cleaned the house and and the cars are upkept. So we have a good relationship, right? 
that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> so that, that's great. You did those things. That's useful. But that doesn't define the relationship. That doesn't picture what's going on in the heart. You could be here and absolutely hate it here. And you could pray begrudgingly and you can serve begrudgingly and you can do all these things stubbornly and not loving and caring and just simply do them. And you won't have the heart. There's a world full of people who are full of philanthropy, who give and give and give, who give of their money, who give of their resources, who give of their time, who who excel far beyond the things that I have the capabilities or the heart probably to even do. That has no bearing on the fact that they have no relationship with God. Doing isn't the definition. Those actions are supposed to come from the love that we have for Christ. Those actions are supposed to come from the love that we have from Christ. And so we need to stop being who we want to be and start being who God wants us to be. We need to start thinking about our end of this relationship, of what Christ is calling us to do. And that's where verse 4 comes in because verse 4 is really a picture of hope. There is some amazing grace that is now described for us, a a positive statement that is made, even though there is not a picture of their good works at all. He says there in verse 4, but there's a few. There are a few people there who have not soiled their garments. And I want you to see what Christ says of them. I want you to be blown away by the words that are given here. He says there that there are people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I was kind of taken aback by that. As I'm reading that, I'm studying that, thinking about this, because they're worthy. Of that, they're going to walk in white because they are worthy. And I mean, they're sitting there going, "Well, none of us are worthy." Lord, how can you say that about these people? Because when we start breaking down our actions and what we've done, and we're not worthy in the slightest. We come way short. And I don't think these are any different. I don't think that Christ is coming along and saying, boy, there's a few Christians in Sardis, and they're perfect. It's amazing. They've never dropped the ball. They are perfect Christians in everything. In how they worship and how they serve and how they love. They are perfect in every way. I don't think that's what Christ is saying at all. He's not demanding perfection. It's a good thing Christ doesn't demand perfection. Because we'll just cancel the invitation song. I'll fold my computer up and we'll go. If that's what's demanded of us. It's not going to work out. Instead, there's something great happening here that we need to see. You have a picture of grace being described that Christ could write to these few people and say, but there are some who have not soiled their garments and you know what they're going to do? They're going to walk with me in white. And they're worthy of that. And that only can be because of God's graciousness. I want to share with you John 1 verse 14. The the beginning of the Gospel of John is such a, a powerful start 
to the life of Christ. When he's describing Christ, he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then jump to 16. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's what we need in this scenario. And that's what we have to be reminded of when we read of a church and go through these pictures of these churches and how they are falling short, is that you and I are going to fail in our pursuit. We're going to fall short. We're going to mess up. And so often that's what causes us to give up. Many times that's the reason we throw in the towel in our pursuit of of Christ as well. I can't do this perfectly. I I can't serve like I know I need to. And and I'm trying, but I keep coming up short. And it's not working out. And I've been trying it for years and years. And it's just still not working out for me. Our failure does not mean we're supposed to give up on the pursuit. But on the same point our failure does not mean that we can live at this level of spiritual mediocrity and that's kind of how it all settles in the end is we start off on fire for Christ we're trying to do all of these things for him and we're serving and we're loving and we're giving and we're doing and we fail and we come up short And we get discouraged by that pursuit. And so we pull back a little bit. And rather than continuing to pursue that perfection and pursue that love and continue to do, we settle into this level of spiritual laziness. Because we know we can't be up here. And so we'll just kind of reside down here. I don't know how to term that. It's just kind of like the... Sediment at the bottom of the cup or something. You know, we just kind of just settle into this level. And often that's really what the problem is, is that we give up on pursuing. We give up on trying to love. We let the fire grow cold. No, we don't give up on God. We're here. And we study and read and we pray and we've got the actions there. But we let that fire die down. We're no longer pressing. We're no longer pursuing. We're no longer driving toward Christ. It's just kind of there. And you see that in all relationships. You see that in friendships and in marriages. That's what happens. As well. We just kind of boil it down to some externals, but the fire's gone. The love is gone. The pursuit is gone. When he says those words, they will walk with me in white they are worthy. I think we immediately understand we're not worthy by our own actions. This isn't going to be because of something that we can do on our own end to be like the church of Sardis. This would be a very demoralizing lesson to, to get to the end of this and go, well, you got to be like those guys. Go out there, be perfect, but you know, go. And we'd be like, it's not going to work out well for me. It's not going to work out well for you either. I submit to you that what Christ is describing here because of the contrast between this dead church 
and then turns around and writes to these in verse 4 and says, there are a few. He's saying there are some who are living real lives for Christ. There's some there who are not fake. There's some there who are not just putting up the facade, who are just punching in their hour. There are some there who legitimately care and love and are pursuing Christ with all of their heart. There are some there who are really seeking after Him. They haven't boiled it down to just simply, I'm here, whatever. Okay, I'll read a little bit more. Alright, I'm here. What do you want me to do? Alright, thanks. I'm done. All I need to do. Yeah, meal. Okay, did it. They love the Lord. They really truly love Him. Their life is fully devoted to Him. He's saying there's a few there who have not just simply mailed it in. They're loving Him. They care about Him. They're pursuing Christ. They're devoted to Him. There's a few there who are that way. And that's what makes the rest of this picture amazing. Verse 5. To the one who conquers. Here's what the conqueror is going to be receiving. He says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To the conquerors, to be wearing white garments. We're going to see that picture a few times in our Sunday night series. It might be tonight. It might be a couple of lessons ahead as well. We're going to see this picture of victory. It's a picture of purity, but it's a picture of victory as well. To the conquerors who are wearing the white robes, he says, there's some things that are going to happen for you. First, I will never blot out your name from the book of life. That is a tremendous promise. For those who are pursuing, for those who are loving Him and are devoted to Him, He says, even in your failures, even in your mistakes and shortcomings, I'm not going to erase your name out of the book of life. You see what He's doing when He said that to them back in verse 4, that they're worthy? You know what He's telling them? He's not telling them that they're these perfect Christians who do everything right, who say everything right, who are just always right on top of it. No, they're not that. But they're loving Jesus. They're pursuing a relationship with Him. They are devoted to Him. They are seeking Him at every turn and at every point. And Christ says, when you're doing that, I know you're not going to be perfect. I know you're not going to always do it right, but I'm not going to erase your name. Your name's not going to be taken out of the book of life. That's the hope that we have. Because it's not about trying to do enough things to make God happy with us. We can't do it. We might as well give up that pursuit now. And so often I think we feel guilty. If I know I need to be doing more things, I'm not doing those things. Well, okay. But is that guilt and is that feeling simply because we're trying to appease a wrathful God that, oh, i got to do a few more things. I'm not doing very good. So that's why I'll go to church today. That will make God happy for at least a few more days. Or do you feel the weight because you love the Lord? 
and realize, boy, I can do better. I know there's more I can do. See how there's such a difference in our attitude of how we're going to look at our relationship with God. Is it, yeah, God's got some things i got to do, so i got to do them? Or is it, I love the Lord and I'll do whatever He asks? And that's what He's pinning on these few who have not soiled their garments. They have the right mindset. They're not dead. They love the Lord. They want to serve Him. They want to do. They're coming up short. They're making mistakes. They're not perfect. But Christ says, if you pursue Me, if you love Me, if you're devoted to Me, I won't erase your name. And second promise, I will confess His name before My Father and before His angels. This is a great summary of exactly what we're talking about. Christ will not deny our relationship with Him if we're not denying our relationship with Him now. What a great picture. If you will devote yourself to Me, if you will confess that Jesus is the Lord and that is seen in your life, not perfectly, but you're striving, you're pressing, you're making Him number one, Christ says, I'll confess your name before My Father. Confess His name now on earth and He says, I'll declare your name there in the final judgment. Is that not a great picture? It's hard to visualize what the end scene will look like. You know, we, we have all kinds of jokes about Peter and pearly gates and lines and things like that. And if there's a line in heaven, that can't be right because that can't be heaven. So that, that, that's not going to work. But we have all these kind of pictures about what heaven is going to be like. And there's always described for us there's two options. We're going to get there... And Christ is either going to say, yes, you are in a relationship with Me. I know this one. You are a child of Mine. Or we're going to get there and He's going to say, I don't know that one. Depart from Me. Those are the two pictures that are given to us. Jesus gives that picture in Matthew. As He's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, He's given the same imagery. Either you confess me now, you love me now, and devote yourself to me now, he says, and I'll confess your name at the end when it really matters. What a great promise. But if our life does not have that devotion now, he says, when you get there, you're foolish for thinking that you're going to be entering into heaven when you are not devoted to him now. We're fooling ourselves into thinking that we can have this fake relationship with Him now that does a few external things and the heart is not there that Christ is just going to let us in. This is an amazing picture of God's graciousness on His part saying, "I, I know you're not going to live up to everything. I know you're not perfect. But will you love Him? Do you care? Do you look at your life and say, yes, there are changes I need to make and I'm striving to make them. I am trying to make those changes. When I hear the Word of the Lord, I try to keep those things. And I'm trying to become and change into what Christ is calling me to be. Because I love Him. 
Christ writes to this church and it is implied, where's the love? Let us not be dead Christians. Let us not be dead spiritually to Him that says, I don't care. I'm not interested. And I would, I'm going to wrap this lesson up with the words of verse 5 one more time. I've been calling this series Ignite. If the promises made in verse 5 do not ignite your heart to want to serve Him, I don't know what to do. I can't throw any more gasoline on that ember than what Christ gives you right here. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They are clothed in white garments, and I will never erase their name from the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father, and before His angels. That's all the motivation we should need. That's it. That's all the motivation we should need to be given the status of worthy to be with Christ even though we are so unworthy of any relationship with Him. To be able to say, He will not take my name out of the book even though my name doesn't deserve or need to be anywhere near that book because of what I've done. He says, not only is your name in the book, it's not even going to be erased. It's never going to be taken out. To say that Christ will stand before His Father and before all of those spiritual beings that we read about in Revelation 4 and 5, that glorious scene where spiritual beings are crying out, holy, 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 where the 24 elders are casting crowns and saying, worthy are you to receive honor and glory, and the Lamb is going to stand there and confess our name before them. I hope that's all the motivation you need. Look at what God has done for us. Look at His grace that even though we don't deserve or are worthy of any of that, He will give it to us if we will love Him, if we will devote ourselves to Him, if we will make Him number one, make Him the priority. And from that love and devotion, pursue Him and strive to do everything that He's asked us to do. We give you that invitation this morning to accept His grace, to turn away from your sins, to confess Him as the Lord, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how you begin a relationship with Jesus. That's the starting point. Have your sins washed away through immersion in water. Begin with Him in that way. And then pursue Him. Desire a relationship with Him. Get to know Him and love Him and make that be the number one in your life. Don't let Him be the leftovers. Stop letting Him be the last thing you get to in the schedule. Let Him be number one. Put Him first. And from that love, let everything else unfold. Because we love Him, that's why we worship. Because we love Him, that's why we serve. 
Because we love Him, that's why we read our Bibles, why we study, why we pray, why we commemorate the Lord's Supper. That's why we do everything, because we love our Lord. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?